Everything you wanted to know about building a talent-driven organization. Insights and practical advice from leaders at the top of their game. In conversation with Belong's co-founder, Rashad Kaul, and Chief Evangelist, Adil Bandukwala. Starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. This is Belong Accelerate. Hello and welcome to Belong Accelerate. This is your host, Adil Bandukwala. I'm in Jakarta, Indonesia today, and I'm stoked to be speaking to Nikki Luhur, an Indonesian financial technology entrepreneur who is passionate about financial inclusion. Nikki is a strong believer in open platforms and shared infrastructure, and an optimist about potential impact artificial intelligence can create going forward. A fierce proponent of high-impact entrepreneurship, Nikki is involved in building entrepreneurial communities and helping support them through mentorship, venture capital, and policy advocacy. He is currently the chairman of Indonesian Fintech Association and special advisor for financial technology to the Ministry of Communication and Information Technology of the Republic of Indonesia. Nikki, delighted to be speaking to you today. Welcome to Belong Accelerate and thank you for making time for this. Thank you for having me. We'll dive straight into the theme of our podcast, Nikki, which is uh, building fintech on a platform of collaboration. Uh, Nikki, we've often noticed over the last few months, the term of 2019 really is about platformification. What does this really mean from a financial services, digital identity slash cybersecurity perspective? What are your thoughts? Well, I think first thing is it all comes down to what do we mean by platform is how do we create a better user experience? How do we become more user centric? How do we typically take different disparate and separate worlds and separate processes and remove the friction, improve the integration and make something that's going to be a lot easier for customers to adapt. And it's not only about the access to financial services, but also the usage and quality. So being able to take a variety of different angles and in the end, simplify it all and make it easy for the user experience and make a superior, faster, quicker, safer, and more seamless product and sets of services for customers. In the case of financial services, one of the biggest friction points today, even though there's been a lot of innovation in being able to, in digital financial services of being able to have fully online platforms, fully online banks, there are certain elements that are still creating substantial moats of friction. And a lot of these usually revolve around a level of compliance from concerns around cybersecurity, issues around things like being able to have a proper know your customer practice, to be able to provide the right levels of consumer protection, address financial systemic risk, and deal with some of the regulators' concerns such as money laundering and terrorism financing. So these are some of the areas that there's a mix of different reasons. There's a lot of stakeholders at play. And the question is, how do we simplify all of these interests by leveraging the latest in digital technologies? One of the key areas that we're a big fan of, and I personally have been investing a lot of my time into, has been the concept of digital identity. How do we address digital identity holistically and comprehensively? So it's much more than just about Yes, it's a know your customer practice. Yes, it's about how do we accelerate the onboarding and application processing so that somebody can open up a bank account or get an online loan very easily and fulfill all the government requirements of being able to verify their identity against government verified identities, but be able to do this in a digital platform, being able to go away from face-to-face interactions and wet signatures and being able to evolve into a completely online platform, which has the most advanced facial recognition, has 
great liveness checks to really make sure this is truly that person being able to cryptographically prove and provide evidence that a user provided consent to their information. So we can balance that fine line between privacy and convenience. It does not need to be one or the other. You can have both. But we need to design these architecture of these systems to be really tightly knit together to be able to have that frictionless user experience, but at the same time, giving the right levels of consumer protection. So this is where, for us, it starts with products such as onboarding, and it starts with how do you sign up for these services? How do you get these provision uh, services provisioned and availed to a customer in as personalized way of a possible, in a simple selfie style process that is really brainless and anybody with a camera phone can do. And the next step is how do we make the technology work for us, not only for the beginning, but to continue to be a strong cybersecurity platform, to take away other headaches in our life that are actually quite critical to the cybersecurity of a financial service that's on provision online. Things like logins, passwords, OTPs, SMSs. These are all actually quite antiquated technologies in terms of the ability to really secure your identity and to secure your credentials and your rights online. So being able to look at how do we sort of just take the best of everybody can unlock their phone and everybody can unlock their phone with simply looking at it today. And that's probably the easiest user experience. It's already built into your behavior. How do we create that level of ease of use? At the same time, we have the best practice security where we're leveraging really hardware-rooted mobile security that is embedded directly into chipset to do all the, the really complex cryptography in the background that is invisible to the consumer. And frankly, hopefully just that no one ever realizes it's there. Because if it's truly good tech, sometimes we hope that it, it can feel like magic. And then in the end, it just is really easy to use, but actually all that cryptography, all those protections, all the complexity is already built in and embedded. And that's what we do as Vida to be able to help our partners in the FinTech ecosystem to collaborate, for us to take the heavy burden of the security and the compliance off of their shoulders. We focus and specialize in, the, in this area so that hopefully each one of our FinTech partners and other companies can be able to just really be consumer obsessive, be customer obsessed, and just continue to work on the front lines. Awesome. Thanks uh, for sharing that perspective, Nikki. Nikki, as uh, technology premates our lives, how do we really go about creating a citizen-centric and privacy-oriented digital identification system that works for all? Now, you talked to us about how easy it needs to be, as simple as unlocking your phone. But on the realistic side of it, how close or far away are we from that dream of making it a reality? What bottlenecks stand in the way? And how can we go about achieving this? Are there governments in the world that you are inspired by who are already making rapid strides toward this? What's your inspiration? So I think the, the beginning really should start from where does the inspiration come from? And this is where at Vida, we've, we've made a very conscious strategic decision to build a team across the region across Indonesia, Singapore, and India. And a lot of this is because of the, the knowledge leadership in actually all three markets of approaching digital identity quite differently. Of course, in India, you have the largest biometric national ID database in the world. Adhar has been a big inspiration for us. 
And we've seen how a very lightweight model can be extremely inclusive and being able to come from a, an initial architecture where it's privacy first and being able to come up with concepts such as a federated identity model to be able to cascade responsibilities among different stakeholders in the ecosystem and to make sure that only the amount of information that's necessary is shared. So it's not sharing everything, it's sharing the minimum of what's needed. I think that concept is extremely important to safeguarding consumers' information, to protecting their data, to giving them more privacy. Now, in terms of, I would say, the latter area where I think inclusion has happened quite well, of course, in India with more than 1.3 billion identities or 1.2 billion identities, sorry, already enrolled in the database today, I think the main challenge is now about how do we make it work? How do we make it work further? So in Indonesia, the architecture is quite different. I would say it, it was not as lightweight, but and it took a lot longer to come online. The enrollment process was a lot slower. But now I would say the Indonesian ecosystem is starting to catch up as well. So we have a national identity database in Indonesia, which has about 190 million residents, biometric information. And now the question is, since it's been securely enrolled, this was enrolled through various government offices. Now is a question of how do we authenticate against this? But at the same time, how do we make sure that the data is used for the right purposes and continues to stay protected? So what we're doing in Indonesia is deploying public key infrastructure as a certificate authority to be able to address the issues of network security, of data security, of data, making sure that all the data in transit and at rest is encrypted and is managed securely. And most importantly, making sure that the private keys to those certificates, the private keys to those digital identity are in the citizen's hands, to making it citizen-centric, to passing the control over who has access to my data, no longer a decision made by enterprises or by governments, but making it so that civilians, citizens, can then actually have the necessary tools at their fingertips to be able to provide access and also continue to have one very important right and that's the right to be forgotten. And the right to be forgotten and to have be able to revoke the rights. Trust is not a one-time, one-way process. This should be something that continues to be maintained. In the offline world, we don't just give people, our friends, trust one time and it's a blanket level of trust forever for the rest of our lives. There should be no difference in the digital world. It's sometimes that... Right now, I think things are moving very quickly that some of these infrastructure components are getting left behind. We're trying to help address that by building up these infrastructures, these digital identity infrastructures, whether it's public key infrastructure, which has frankly been around since the birth of the internet. Right? Web trust has been around. These are not new standards. And most importantly, how do we push as much of this control to the edge? Not only to leverage growing tech trends around uh, edge computing, which has a lot of promise, but being able to push all the cryptography, all the security, all the secure storage, literally to your mobile device and doing it in a mobile, in a secure way, the same way that the big OSs do. So Face ID, Touch ID, Google Play, all these different stores actually have digital rights management software built into their services whether it's for licensing or for controlling the, the paid 
parts of these mobile applications in these ecosystems is being managed by a secure OS in each of the devices. What we're doing is we're leveraging the same architecture. We're leveraging the same architecture, which is sometimes known as trust zone, to be able to leverage the security that already exists on your mobile device, but being able to open it up so that this is not for a company to license, to issue licenses, to issue digital rights, but this is ability for the user to be able to leverage that kind of technology to, in the future, exercise all of their rights digitally through their mobile with the same level of security. Fascinating, Nikki. Nikki, you spoke about this one word that I think the whole world is trying to grapple with today, and that is trust. Trust, obviously, is one of the biggest social capitals in the world. And when you think about trust, the one ecosystem that has a lot to do with trust is everything open banking, everything collaboration, everything fintech. And on that was my next question, which is we've lived through disruption you know, we've lived through these so-called warnings and threats or opportunities and the promise of open banking and collaborations as we move into the next generation of financial services. What exactly, according to you, is FinTech 4.0? And what is that world looking like? How are you imagining that, reimagining that? And then if you could also talk, us, talk to us about how does this whole digital identity weave in into this world of uh, fintech going forward? So I think first about the concept of digital trust. It is a very big word. For us, I think it starts with a very basic concept of let's think about how we do things in the offline world. The fundamental difference between the offline world and the online world, in the offline world, we trust through our relationships. We trust through a face-to-face -face relationship. We trust on a case-by-case -case basis by meeting somebody, by spending time with them and being able to then have a network of people, of trusted relationships to then continue to propagate our social networks of closed networks. And we trust people for different things because they have different levels of knowledge, of expertise in different fields. I think this is where, for us, we're trying to empower and change the model in the online world today. The actual technical architecture is you actually trust everything. You trust everything that enters into your server network. You open up to connect to everyone at all times from whatever point of origin, which is not fundamentally how our society and our social constructs and how our human interactions are built. We don't start with trusting everything and everyone. In fact, trust is built up one by one, one step at a time. So this is where on our side, we believe that the whole entire architecture of trust needs to change in the technology perspective. And we are learning from some of the latest models. And one of the models that we believe in a lot is called the zero trust model. The zero trust model simply says we don't trust anything or anyone until we decide on a case by case, one by one basis to start trusting things. So what we in that situation will do is only trust the users, the devices, and the applications that we know, and we do it one by one, and we securely enroll people one by one that, okay, we know who you are, we trust your identity, we have validated and verified your identity against the government database, we know it's truly you, we're going to be able to put a digital certificate on your device to give that imprinting to make sure, yes, this is truly you, and you don't have to prove your full identity every time, it's just a one-time process that per device, we just say, okay, this is truly you. 
And then afterwards, you have the ease and access of use uh, of being able to have that trusted device with that trusted application, with that trusted user, connect to the network, and then make it that all those users that have gone through those first few steps actually can access services really seamlessly. What we want to avoid is punishing all these users who are doing things the right way, who are being honest, who are following the law, who are acting ethically, and at the end of the day, suffering by the hands of a few who are committing fraud, suffering by the hands of a few who are gaming the system. And then the usual response is that treating everybody like they're not the right person to be trusted. But then that's, that ends up being the difficult approach. We believe that if you start first with trusting zero, zero trust, and then building on that trust one by one, and occasionally when there are breaches of trust, we can revoke the case, that that's the better way to build, as opposed to trusting everyone initially and then treating everyone like a fraudster and then making everyone have to run through the hoops of if they were a robot or they were a, a cyber attack. The, we believe that this needs to be flipped on its head. So this is where if we tie it into a process, especially with financial services, yes, the initial enrollment and onboarding, it may sound a lot more difficult, but leveraging the best in consumer tech, leveraging the best on mobile device security, as well as the latest advancements in facial recognition, we believe that we can achieve this again with a simple selfie and most importantly, the second part, a consent page. And it's really just needs to be a two-step process. And from there, you're already part of the ecosystem. And after that, as long as you're part of this trusted network and part of that trusted edge, you don't need to continue to prove you are who you say you are any much more than just unlocking your phone with your face. And that's it. Got that. Uh, Nikki, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is the people who are actually behind this and helping build this tech for the people who are going to eventually use this tech. And from a very talent perspective, we've noticed that technology and innovation are industries that are at a crossroads today. So my question is, where can talent go from here? What, what do you envision? Who and how will build this industry and society of the future going forward? What kind of talent? Well, I think in terms of the talent that's really going to build out the future, for me, as much as, of course, I come from the startup fintech world, yes, I think technology is going to be a very big driver, but technology in itself, to me, is not really an industry. Technology is an enabler across any industry in reality. So coming down to the people who are truly the entrepreneurs who are there to first and foremost solve the problem. Whether it's a fintech entrepreneur that's focusing on financial services issues, whether it's an e-commerce entrepreneur who's trying to focus on how do they solve commerce or retail issues. or These are the areas where fundamentally, yes, technology is a new skill. It is a new quote-unquote industrial revolution 4.0. But in and of itself, it's more about the industry that the technology is being applied to is where we will see the change. And first and foremost, to me, startup, yes, part of it is about you know the size of the company and some of the latest technologies and skills. Those are very important. Talent is very important. But first and foremost, it comes down to mindset. Mindset of putting yourself into new territories, into new horizons, and willing to take a lot of risk to innovate. As the saying goes, necessity is the mother of all innovation. 
So unless you really have a burning problem, those applications don't tend to really go to scale unless they're really addressing a problem at scale. And it comes down to what are these sorts of problems that people are focusing on. At Vida, the team here, we have a big mix of people coming from information security backgrounds, from cryptography backgrounds, from CISO backgrounds to uh, fintech backgrounds. But ultimately, what we share in common is an issue around authentication and being able to authenticate people remotely in the field securely. We have a variety of different applications and backgrounds that we all come from, and that's part of the beauty of what we believe in. We believe in diversity of thought. We believe in getting the best of minds from a variety of sectors to be able to think out of the box, to be able to think in a new fashion and take some some problems that have persisted in our society for a while, whether it's in the case of financial inclusion, access to financial services, how do we solve some of the, the fraud in welfare distribution? How do we solve some of the issues in education of access to quality education or making sure that teachers are there to teach the students on time? Or in the healthcare case, how do we ensure that there's accessibility to some patients' medical records and very vital information, but being able to do that while maintaining the full privacy of their information as well. So it's this balance of ubiquity and privacy that needs to be carefully balanced for us. But this is where, for us, we believe in a collaborative environment. We have a set of expertise among the team where we believe we're very strong. And we look forward to collaborating with the entire different ecosystems, not only in Indonesia, but of course in in India, as well as in Singapore, to be able to think about a variety of different issues beyond financial inclusion and think about how we extend this towards government services, education, as well as healthcare. And on that note, that's a wrap on our podcast today. That was Nikki Luhur, the Indonesian financial technology entrepreneur that we've been speaking to, the chairman of Indonesia's FinTech Association and special advisor for financial technology to the Ministry of Communication and IT of the Republic of Indonesia. Nikki, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Belong Accelerate. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please subscribe to Belong Accelerate on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast channel you choose to listen from. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. If you have suggestions on themes and any particular guests you would like us to cover, please tweet to us with hashtag Belong Accelerate. See you on our next podcast. Ciao.